Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining me again. We have the end in sight when it comes to this discussion on marriage. I really hope that this has been profitable for you, and I am thankful to be able to do this, but I'm also looking forward to the opportunity to move on to some other subjects. So I have a list going. If you have a particular subject that you'd like to have covered on the podcast, let me know, and I will be happy to put that on my list and look at doing an episode on that in the future. You can reach me uh, by sending an email to our church at uh, gracebrethrenchapel at gmail.com. All right, to finish up uh, this particular section on marriage, we are going to have our final two lessons here on intimacy. And today I want to cover God's purposes for intimacy. And I think this is a, a very fundamental question that is often overlooked by people who are going to get married. They, they think about intimacy a lot. They're excited about the prospect of having intimacy. But the theology and the rationale behind having intimacy isn't always readily apparent, nor is it something that they think about in a very conscious way before they get married. And I believe. As you know, you've been a long-time listener, I believe that understanding theology, which is truth about God, and then God's explanation about how life works, understanding theology and its application to life is critical, critical to understanding how we interact with and live life with one another. So all the decisions that you make in life, all the actions that you take should be undergirded by a biblical principle derived from a biblical theology. So let's ask this question. What are God's purposes for intimacy? Our view of intimacy can be shaped by many things, and often it is not shaped by the Word of God. I would say the first and foremost shaper of our conception of intimacy is the culture. Our culture and our society says a lot about intimacy, and in specific, uh, our American culture says that intimacy is something that is for your own personal self-fulfillment, and you should do whatever you want to to be fulfilled in your sexual relationship. And that is a, a great driving force for a number of people. Uh, we have, in a lot of ways, divorced spirituality from intimacy. And so there is no longer a spiritual connection that is formed between two people who have a sexual union. And because there is no spiritual connection formed, all we are left with is pleasure-seeking. And therefore, we seek pleasure as often as we are able to and in, and in as many ways as we are able to. And so culture really shapes our view of intimacy. 
But what else shapes our view of intimacy? I would say the second most influential shaper of intimacy is our friend group. What do our friends think about sex and the sexual union? Next would be parents. What do your parents think about intimacy? Finally, and perhaps sadly, the church would be the last group or the last shaper of a person's understanding of intimacy. I think this is sad because the church has really failed in a lot of ways to communicate the rich truths of the Bible to young people concerning intimacy. And the culture has basically taken the role of chief influencer or chief philosopher or chief imparter of knowledge away from the church to the point where the culture speaks about intimacy and talks about intimacy and describes intimacy in very open ways. Now, a lot of that is sinful, but you know what? People want to know about intimacy. And even if the culture is presenting sinful ideas and sinful conceptions, they are talking about it. Unfortunately, the church is not talking about it. We're not talking about it frequently with young people. And so young people's attitudes and ideas about intimacy are being shaped by culture and not the church, when in fact it ought to be the other way around. Now I'm sure that somebody is listening and thinking, well, the church just has a very narrow view of intimacy. The church's view of intimacy is backward and uh, Neanderthal, if you will. That may be true in some cases, but I don't believe that's true in every case. And I believe that there are a great number of Christians who have a a well-rounded biblical view of intimacy, but for whatever reason, those voices are not heard, those voices are not promoted, uh, those voices do not come to have an influence in the church at large, and so they remain somewhat of a mystery or an enigma to young people. And I believe that the church needs to be strong on what are God's purposes for intimacy. If anybody should know what God's purposes for intimacy are, it is the local church. So let me begin there by defining four purposes that God has for intimacy. All right, four purposes that God has for intimacy. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of the four, and then I'll talk about them at great length. The first purpose that God has for intimacy is procreation. The second is that a husband and wife would provide comfort to one another. A third is that a husband and wife would provide mutual pleasure for one another. And finally, the fourth purpose is that a husband and wife would fulfill one another's physical needs. So let's go back, let's circle back to the first one, procreation. This is God's first stated purpose of intimacy. It's stated at the culmination of creation, and it's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And the Lord blessed them, this is male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, 
So in that command, be fruitful and multiply, is one of God's purposes for intimacy. It's not the only purpose for intimacy, as some have mistakenly asserted, but it is one of God's purposes for intimacy, that of procreation. This is stated as a command. It is not an option to procreate. Now, as an aside, it's obvious that due to the effect of the curse of sin, some couples who have a desire to procreate are unable to do so. But that is, that is not their fault, and God will honor their desire in their heart to want to procreate. On the other hand, one of the trends that has become increasingly popular in 21st century America is a trend to decide not to have children, even though you're perfectly capable of having children. This trend I've noticed amongst millennials and those younger than millennials, and they choose purposefully not to have children. If you are a Christian and you make this choice, you must recognize that you are sinning directly against God Himself. God has said that a husband and wife must procreate. So that is one of the purposes for intimacy. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to have as many children as you could possibly have, but you have to at least try to procreate. Bearing children, therefore, is the expected result of a one flesh relationship. Now, a second purpose for intimacy, according to God, is that of comforting one another. All right, Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18 says this, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him, a helper fit for him. Now, this is the ESV rendering. Uh, some of the other versions say, a helper to comfort him. And why? Why does he need comfort? Well, it says plainly in the text that it is not good for man to be alone. The one flesh relationship is a relationship that is so strong and unique that it fulfills both physical, spiritual, and emotional needs. The one flesh relationship is that one unique relationship in a person's life that can replace the relationship of that of a parent with their child. Now, there's a great example of a one flesh relationship being established that provides great comfort for uh, the, the couple, in particular, the husband. And this is in Genesis chapter 24, verses 65 through 67. After Sarah's death, uh, Isaac was able to meet his wife, Rebekah. Now, she wasn't his wife when they met, but the text uh, plainly records that Rebekah, Rebekah was the, the woman who had been chosen by God and found by Abraham's servant to, to bring back to marry Isaac. And the text says that Isaac brought her into his mother's tent. 
There wasn't a formal marriage ceremony in this case. No, what consummated their marriage was their sexual and physical union. And Isaac was comforted not just because he had someone to have intimate relationship with. Rather, he was comforted because the the relationship that had been broken between he and his mother was now going to uh, be mended with the relationship that he would have with his wife. So his relationship with his mother was broken due to her death, and that left a great hole and an empty space in his life. And he was comforted by his wife. She then became the primary relationship in his life. Now, Isaac and Sarah, um, I need to say this as a little side note. Isaac and Sarah did not have an incestuous relationship. Rather, they were close because Isaac was, you recall, the, the son of promise. He was the, the one who had been promised to Abraham and Sarah, and it had taken a little bit over 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And so you can imagine that Sarah had a special bond with her son Isaac. So before you would allow somebody to interpret this text incorrectly or say there was some type of gross immorality going on, Isaac and Sarah did not have an incestuous relationship. They had a relationship that was close because of the special nature of Isaac being the son of promise. Now, just as Eve was a comfort to Adam when he looked around God's creation and didn't see any animal that fit him, there was not a helper that was found that was suitable for him. So, a wife and a husband are a comfort to one another. And that comfort can be expressed. Uh, not just in the day-to-day activities of living life together, but that comfort is really primarily expressed in the vulnerability and in the joy and in the intimacy found in the sexual union. Now, a a third purpose for intimacy from God is that of mutual pleasure for one another. Unfortunately, many people have the idea that somehow God is a prude, and if you are a Christian, you are also a prude, and you don't enjoy sex or sexual relationship because you're not supposed to. However, that's far from, far from being true. God wrote an entire book in the Bible on how to have an enjoyable sexual relationship, and that book is called The Song of Solomon. That book is an incredible testament that God designed human beings, created in His image, not just for procreation, not just for comforting one another, but also for mutually pleasuring one another with their bodies. Um, It's really unfortunate that Christians over the centuries have somehow determined that mutual pleasure isn't a legitimate purpose of intimacy. However, if you are discounting this purpose, 
you are acting sinfully with the text. Why is it sinful? Because you're not speaking all the truth that God has spoken. So if you discount this purpose, you are doing wrong according to God's word. Uh, let me give you, uh, I'm not going to read from the Song of Solomon. That's a long, long book. Uh, and, but, I, but there are some other places in the scriptures that talk about mutually pleasuring one another. And so I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs uh, says this, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Now, this is an admonition to husbands to take pleasure in their wives. And, you know, most men don't have a problem taking pleasure in their wives. Most men don't have a problem taking pleasure in many women. In fact, our struggle is to make sure that we focus our pleasure just on one woman. And that's exactly the context of this particular passage. Uh, Solomon, the author of Proverbs, is saying, hey, don't be intoxicated by the beauty and the uh, intimate relationship you could have with an adulteress. Rather, you should find all your satisfa satisfaction and fulfillment in, the, in your wife, in the wife of your youth. I believe that mutual pleasure for one another is a unique way that mankind is different than the animal world. Um, there are a high percentage of animals in the animal kingdom that have intercourse at a specific time of the year solely for the purpose of procreation, but they do nothing the rest of the year. Um, Yet, that, that is not how God designed mankind. Because of the unique nature of the one flesh union, mankind has a need to continually satisfy his physical desires. And when I say his, I mean his or her physical desires. There, there are desires that a woman has and desires that a husband has. And Christian couples need to learn how to provide mutual pleasure for one another. Now, how to do that is beyond the scope of this particular lesson. But there are a lot of great resources that you can find on the internet that will help you if you have a hang-up in this particular area. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who have brought baggage into their marriage relationship and they have a negative view of sex, or they, they have guilt because of past sexual sin. And it's unfortunate because Christians allow their past baggage and their past guilt to mess up and um, taint what should otherwise be a very enjoyable and mutually pleasurable experience. I think that when you look at the Song of Solomon, you find that both the bridegroom and the bride took delight in looking at their partner's bodies. They took delight in what they were going to do to one another's bodies. They took great delight in enjoying one another's bodies for the sole purpose of 
satisfaction and pleasuring one another. And they did it in a very selfless manner. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why it's hard to have mutual pleasure. We, we struggle to be selfless when it comes to this particular aspect of intimacy. I would challenge you to think about this. God wants you in your marriage to be able to pleasure one another in a mutual way. And for the husband, that may look different than, than what that looks like for the wife. And that's normal because the sexes, the genders, have different triggers that are pleasurable to them. And we need to be sensitive to those things in our marriage relationships so that each couple or each partner in the couple finds mutual fulfillment. Now, finally, for last, I have saved a perhaps a contentious passage but a nonetheless important passage, and this is the fourth purpose for intimacy, that of fulfilling one another's needs. And this is a command that comes from Paul to married couples, and it's found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, we find that Paul is writing to married couples and giving specific instructions on their relationship. And he says this, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And here's the key. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, one of the key principles in understanding this passage is understanding the the culture in which the Corinthians lived. It was a very sexually immoral culture. And many of those who were in the church had probably practiced some form of temple prostitution at one point or another. And as a result of that, they had probably gone to a, an attitude of, we're just not going to have sex, we're not going to have sexual relationships, because it reminds us of the worship, the the idol worship that we used to commit in our former lives. That meant that the married couples within the church were not having regular intercourse together. And this was leading to other problems. It was leading to temptation because God designed men and women together to have a sex drive. Now those uh, the sex drive that you have and that your spouse have, they may not always match up. In other words, one might have a higher drive and one might have a lower drive. But you have a drive and you have a need and it needs to be fulfilled. And it, fulfillment, according to God, can only happen within the confines of marriage to the person that you're married to. 
And so Paul has to write to the church and say, look, in general, it's good if you don't have sexual relationships with a woman. That's generally a good thing. Abstinence is a good thing. But abstinence within marriage is sinful because you have experienced the joy of sex and it's hard to go back to no sex when you're used to regularly having intercourse. So Paul says, look, you as a married couple have an obligation to fulfill one another's physical needs. And what is assumed by Paul's command? That God, in his wisdom, designed man and woman to have sexual desires. And the responsibility to fulfill your partner's desires falls upon you. Note particularly the mutual responsibility present in this passage. If the husband has a desire, his wife is to fulfill that desire for him. That's not a blank check to do whatever you want in the bedroom, but it is a command to make sure that you satisfy your husband's sexual desires. Vice versa, if the wife has a sexual desire, It is the husband's obligation to fulfill the desires of his wife. Again, this isn't a blank check to do whatever you want, but it is a command for the husband to take seriously to make sure that he is satisfying the desire of his wife. It seems to me, in my observation of Christianity, that this particular passage has been used quite frequently to to challenge wives to make sure that they're meeting their husband's physical needs. And that can sometimes come across as demeaning to the wife because, you know, well, I'm just commanded to meet his, his needs. If you don't teach this passage with a balanced perspective, this passage will come across as demeaning. And the wife will feel like she's getting the short end of the stick. But the reality is, this passage commands for mutual satisfaction. And for us as men, uh, we can have satisfaction in in a rather short amount of time. We can come to the point of climax in a rather short amount of time. But that's not usually true for wives. So, men, we need to make sure that we are doing our responsibility to satisfy our wives. Men, we need to ask her what desires she has, and we need to take the amount of time necessary to fulfill her desires. It may take her much longer to come to a point of climax. It may take much more foreplay to help her come to a point of climax. But if we're going to fulfill her desires, then we need to be willing to be self-controlled and restrain ourselves uh, and not just seek what we want in intimacy, but be really willing to put our wives' needs far above our own. In this particular command, it is also important to remember the, the command given by Paul that you don't seek your own selfish interest but you seek the interest of others. 
And I know couples who have really tried to practice that in the area of sexual intimacy, and they both find much fulfillment in the area of sexual intimacy. And you may say, well, you know, that's fine. That's all fine and well, but what if I want sex multiple times a week and my wife only wants sex once a month? That's when this command uh, really can be applied from the, the wife to the husband that she, even though she doesn't want sex as frequently, she will have sexual relationships with her husband to fulfill his desires. And that is an act of sacrifice on her part, but it is also an act of love, and it is a fulfillment of a command given in the scriptures. Conversely, you may find this hard to believe, but I have found it to be true in my own studies, in my own conversations. There are some wives who have a stronger sexual drive than their husbands, and in that case, the husband needs to do what he must in order to fulfill his wife's sexual desires. And that means that he might have to have sex at a frequency greater than what he would prefer in order to satisfy her. Now, this particular purpose for intimacy, to fulfill one another's physical needs, I placed last in the list kind of for a reason, because I think that if you're if you're really doing well at number two, comforting one another, and number three, providing mutual pleasure, maybe you don't always run into this situation of having to fulfill uh, one another's physical needs. Um, maybe you are already meeting those needs because you're, you're taking care of that on a regular basis. But there are times where you just need to have uh, the... You just need to have intimacy, and circumstances have not allowed for it for whatever reason, and you just need to to do it. And so this would be one of the reasons that you should be able to communicate to your spouse, look, the scripture says that you are to fulfill your duty to me. You can't withhold this from me, and so I would like to uh, I would like for you to fulfill my needs. Now, I will caution you, don't ever use this in a manipulative way. Don't ever abuse this privilege. Just because this is written into the, into the Bible doesn't mean that you can twist the words of God for your own sinful perversion. And that is true in the area of sex as well as in the area of any other aspect of theology. I think, unfortunately, many Christians have viewed this passage and said, well, sex is a duty, so I'm just going to you know, shut up and put up and do what I have to do, and that's that. Well, sex is not merely a duty. If you're reducing sexual intimacy to just a duty, you are doing a great disservice to one of the most precious gifts that God has given to you. Well, that's all for this particular episode, and I, I could certainly expound more on these categories, but this will at least give you a basis of application and a a place to start as you consider these important purposes for intimacy. May you be challenged by these 
And I would encourage you, if you listen to this, go and talk to your spouse about these four purposes and see where you're doing well, maybe where you fall short. And may it be a a good conversation starter for you to reshape the way that you think about one of the greatest gifts that God has given to married couples. 